0: you are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. Well, up to this point in Paul's letter to the Colossian church, he has been building a case that Jesus Christ is supreme. The Colossians seem to have lost their zeal for the Lord and their understanding of the sufficiency of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, and the glory of the gospel. There seemed to be those who had crept into the church in Colossae and had been telling the Colossian church, listen, Jesus is good, Jesus is fine, but in order to find real fullness, real Spirituality, real joy, real depth in this spiritual life. We're not asking you to deny Jesus, but we want to add something to Jesus. And so Paul has been explaining the great supremacy of Christ up to this point in the book of Colossians. He has told the Colossian church that Jesus is supreme over creation, over the church. Over and in our reconciliation. He has told them that he had come as an apostle and a messenger to the Gentiles to reveal the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That that Christ would actually dwell and live inside of us, and that if that is the reality, then who has any need for any additional philosophy or word of spiritualism? There's no need to add to that great hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He goes on to explain at the beginning of chapter two, that in Jesus, in him, in this mystery, in Jesus is found all the fullness uh, of every uh, hidden treasure of wisdom wisdom and knowledge and so he says all of these things to the Colossian church building up the uh you know the reality of who Jesus is you have a great thing in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you Colossian church so he starts out here in verse 6 in our text today Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 he says therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving and so today's section starts with paul giving them an exhortation to walk in christ jesus their lord you know if all these things are true paul says therefore you know he says therefore verse six if if all these things are true if christ is preeminent if all the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. If, if Christ is uh, the mystery, Christ in us, the hope of glory. If all these things are true, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, he says. And Paul knew who had delivered Christ to them. He knew Epaphras. He knew his ministry. He knew what Epaphras had taught them. And so he says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That phrase is a beautiful phrase. It means simply to live closely in Jesus, to just day by day experience Christ, to day by day walk in Christ, to enjoy the benefits of a relationship with Christ, to walk clothed in Christ, which he'll talk more about in the third chapter, but to walk in him. You know, this would be an important message, of course, for the Colossian church to receive. The Colossians, because of the philosophies that had begun to creep into their midst, they were a group that was susceptible to flashy arguments and quick progression. In other words, they wanted something. They were thirsty, hungry for something that would give them spirituality quickly. A shortcut, if you will. And here's Paul announcing to them, there is no shortcut. You need to simply walk in him. If you want to grow, if you want to be, as he said in verse 7, rooted uh, and built up in him and established in the faith, then simply walk in him. I don't know anybody who wouldn't want the words in verse 7 to describe their lives, to be a rooted person, to be a person who is built up in Jesus, a person who is established in the faith. These are quality Words. These are words that don't deal with just mere su- superficial types of things. You know, he doesn't talk about passion. He doesn't talk about uh, a contagiousness. He doesn't talk about uh, a real, you know, uh, attractiveness of spirit. Those things can be found in people who love the Lord and they can be found in people who do not love the Lord. Uh, they're neutral, so to speak. But here, these words, rooted, Built up, established, these are solid words. And this is what happens in a person's life when they simply walk in Jesus. Just experience the Lord. A walk is something that isn't flashy. You know, you're never going to boast about a a walk that you took around the block, you know, and, and, oh, I went on this nice long walk and no one's going to look at you and think, man, you're an incredible athlete for being able to walk for half an hour or whatever it might be. No, a a walk is not flashy, but a walk is consistent. A walk is present. A walk is one foot in front of the other. I've found that in the Christian life, so much of it, you know, is just showing up, just being present, one foot in front of the other. I never know which day the Lord is just going to loudly speak into my heart. So I just try to, every day, open up the Word of God and see what He might speak into my heart. I don't know which day the Lord is going to just grab a hold of me in prayer and lead me in prayer and really reveal things to my heart as I pray and strengthen me in such a powerful way. And so by faith, every day, I try to simply pray. I don't know which church service God is going to rock my world. I don't know which conversation with a believer is going to make a major impact upon my life or their life. So I just continue to show up. And I think that's in large part what Paul is talking about is in this walk in him. Just showing up in him. Just living in him. Just enjoying him. Now at the end of verse 7, he gives this great antidote to the wandering heart syndrome that the Colossians were dealing with. Again, they had Jesus, but they were hearing these philosophies that were causing them to wander within their hearts. Paul tells them at the end of verse 7, you know, you walk in him, you're rooted, you're built up, you're established, abounding in thanksgiving. One of the greatest ways to remain firm against the false doctrines and false messengers who would say, hey, here's a shortcut to spirituality. You just read this book, it changed my life. You read these ideas, they just changed my life. They're not, they're not found in scripture, but they've helped me become a more spiritual person, a better person. They've improved my life. Well, one way to avoid getting sucked into that kind of doctrine or line of thinking is to abound in thanksgiving For what you have in Christ Jesus. When you understand who Jesus is and what he has done for you, your heart will rejoice. And when someone comes along and says, hey, listen, try this or try that, you say, I don't need to. I'm so thankful for what I have in Christ Jesus. Now in verse eight, Paul goes on here in Colossians two, and he begins to give them a pretty stern warning, a warning that I think he'll really unpack when we get to the 16th verse in our next teaching but that he touches on here in verse eight. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, sometimes we read verses like this and we think to ourselves, okay, that sounds great. I don't want anyone to take me captive and Yeah, Paul, I'll see to it that no one takes me captive by philosophy and empty deceit. But we really don't know exactly what Paul is alluding to. And like I said, he's going to allude to these things in verse 16 and following, which we'll cover in our next study. But there are certain things that we can define here in verse 8 that might help us understand who it is and what it is that we need to be on guard against. First of all, the big exhortation is don't let anyone take you captive By philosophy and empty deceit. The the empty deceit and the philosophy are tied and linked together. Now the word philosophy is just a word that simply means a love of wisdom. So here's a question. Would any love of any wisdom that cannot be found in scripture be a wisdom that we should reject? And I think as Christians who are reasonable, we have to say absolutely not. You know, when my car breaks down, I take it to a mechanic. I don't look into the word of God to try to figure out how to fix my uh, starter or or uh, change my oil. That's something that I take to a professional. And I say, look, you understand, or or I'll, I'll go to a pro- professional source and read about it there. There's wisdom there. There's knowledge there. And there are philosophies, and there there is a source of wisdom and knowledge that Uh, You you might not find in scripture, but when it comes to the realm of the body or the realm of the soul, the realm of the spirit, the Lord wants to speak to us. He wants to encourage us. He he has something to say when it comes to the inner man uh, within us. Just as I'd go to a physician to say, look, doctor, my knee is hurting. What do you have to say to me when my heart is hurting, when my soul is hurting, when my mind is hurting? I go to the word of God what's the philosophy what is the wisdom that the word of God would give to me but there's a deceit that Paul is saying watch out for there are there are philosophies that that purport to be wise that are actually just lies Paul says watch out for them now to understand them a little more fully Paul gives these three according to phrases he says according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So first one that he warns against is that human tradition, human tradition. In other words, is this a philosophy that came from man or did it come from God? And sometimes human tradition looks as if it came from God, but upon further inspection, it becomes obvious that it came from man. The Pharisees are an excellent case study on this particular reality with their robes and their public prayers and their public offerings and their refusal to, you know, be around anything that was considered unclean their sabbath day uh, laws and and all of that which were very strict you'd almost look at that and say surely that's from god surely that's what godliness looks like but the problem with the pharisees is that they had started out loving god's word but because they wanted to preserve god's word they made rules that were in addition to god's word And those rules that they made in addition to God's word began to carry the same weight, if not more weight than God's word itself. And so often people will do this. They'll say, listen, here's the line. The line is sexual immorality. And here's where I don't want to go. And then they will take 15 steps back from that line of sexual immorality and they'll draw a new line, a new rule or a new requirement. You know some kind of odd maybe i 've heard of Christians who have made the, had these weird perspectives about sex inside of marriage and that it 's you know some kind of erroneous idea like it 's only for procreation it 's not for enjoyment you know and and it 's basically taking. God's word, don't engage yourself into sexual immorality and just saying, well, then let's step all the way back into the realm of no joy in it whatsoever, even for a married couple, because we don't want to give ourselves to sexual immorality. And that is making a human tradition that is so contrary to the word of God. Listen, there are times, of course, where there are other lines that can be drawn where it's just wisdom. It should not be a law, but it's just wisdom. Like if a man says, I don't want to go into sexual immorality, so I'm going to lock down all of my internet um, accessible uh, devices, and I'm going to lock them down so that I cannot access the internet without someone, uh, a mature believer, my spouse getting a report of the where I've gone online. I'm not going to give myself the freedom to just install any crazy app that might lead me towards a path of sexual immorality. I'm going to draw lines that make it impossible for me to head there. But that's wisdom. But that wisdom should not overtake the Word of God. Human tradition, Paul warns about it here. Then he says here in verse 8, he says also, or according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, what in the world does that mean? The elemental spirits of the world. There are a couple different ways that that phrase could be translated. One way is just to say that what Paul means is the elementary sounds or letters. Kind of the ABCs, the basic elements of the universe. And of course, these are religious ideas. So the basic ABCs of religion. And if you think about it, one basic ABC of religion is the idea of cause and effect. If I'm a good person, good things should happen to me. If I'm a bad person, then I can understand how bad things would happen to me. But the Bible gives us wisdom that is above and beyond those basic ABCs of religion. It takes us into a place where we realize that actually none of us is good, all of us are bad, none of us is righteous, no, not one. And that God did this incredible and wonderful good thing for us in sending his Son, but not in response to a good thing that we had done, actually in response to a bad thing that we had done, allowing sin to uh, enter into the world and then just consistently living that life of rebellion and sin. There is grace that rides above the basic ABCs of whatever someone might call it, karma or cause and effect. The Bible goes above and beyond that and shows us that that basic elementary religion is not accurate. But another way to think about that phrase, the elemental spirits of the world, is that it could be translated the elemental spirits who influence the heavenly bodies. Now, what does that mean? It basically is speaking of, the religious astrology of Paul's day, worshiping uh, angelic beings or stars or uh, things in in the sky uh, that that were purported to have influenced creation or the heavenly bodies, and I think this is a warning, definitely against things like horoscopes or the zodiac system or mysticism or Ouija boards. Uh, there's this sense and understanding that. We are to, as believers, stay away from those types of what we might think of as spiritual shortcuts. They, they aren't shortcuts at all. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, of course, human beings operate this way so often. We look at the stars, which would cause us to marvel at God's majesty and God's wisdom and should bring us to our knees in worship of the greatness of God. And instead of doing that, we look at the stars and we tell ourselves, surely those stars must say something about me. Surely those stars must be pointing to me. It's just another form of self-worship. I'm so important that the stars in the sky must be saying something about my life or influencing something about my life. Paul says, watch out for those elemental spirits of the world. Do not give yourself to them. They are not according to verse eight. They are not according to Christ in Christ. We have the Holy spirit. We have the word of God given to us. We have prayer. We have fellowship with other believers and rebuke and instruction and correction at their hands. We have the gifts of the spirit. We have so many wonderful things in Christ that speak to us, direct us, guide us, tell us the truth about ourselves. We do not need to look to the stars or any other thing to try to get our insight. We have God and his word, what he's given to us in Christ. That's why Paul says in verse nine, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. Who is the head of all rule and authority. What he's saying there in verse nine is listen. First of all, there were those who were creeping into the Colossian church and saying, Jesus may have been partly God, but not completely God. And, Paul announces in verse nine, no, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. He's completely God. And there were others who were saying, no, when Jesus came, he came as a spirit. He did not really take up a human body. John tells us, of course, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here, Paul says, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he did become man. He did become flesh and dwell among us. And so here's what Paul is saying. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you, Colossian church, if you've received him, you've been filled in him, the one who's the head of all rule and authority. In other words, why do you need any other thing? You've been filled with the greatest being, whoever is, whoever was, whoever will be. You are absolutely full You are stuffed with Christ. Why do you need some weak imitation or weak philosophy to steer you or to guide you? You don't need them at all. If someone were to say to me, Nate, have you read your horoscope today? Isn't it helpful? I would say, why would I turn to something so weak and beggarly? I've been filled with Jesus, who is the fullness of deity bodily. I've been filled with his spirit. I am filled in him. I am satisfied. I am stuffed. I need nothing else. Now, perhaps there was someone in the Colossian church who would say at this point, well, Paul, that's great, but I don't think Jesus is as wonderful as you make him out to be. He's great, but really, is he all that impressive? In the next few verses, Paul is going to lay out how impressive Jesus is in the context of what he has done for his followers, for his believers. And really I, I think what Paul is doing is he's scratching the surface and touching on really major New Testament doctrines. He's gonna talk about how we've received a new nature. He's gonna talk about how we were buried with Jesus, raised with Jesus, made alive together with Jesus forever and ever, that we've been forgiven by Jesus, that the handwriting of requirements against us was wiped out with Jesus, that We are victorious in Jesus, that he triumphed over uh, sin and death and the enemy. And as he's saying these things, these are things that even though he's scratching the surface of them here, these are things that throughout the New Testament, as you study them, this is the source of growth. You learn these things, you grow in these things, you develop in these things, and your life is changed and transformed. So let's look at them quickly here. He says in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision is kind of one of those uncomfortable New Testament words. Here, Paul mentions it three times. And he talks about this thing that he calls the circumcision of Christ. He doesn't often talk about this part of things in his epistles. He Maybe alludes to it in Philippians chapter 3, but other than that, this is about it. The circumcision of Christ. What is that, we might ask? Well, he says, it's a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is, there was an external outward circumcision, to be sure, for the Israelite people, but it was outward, it was external, it was physical. Jesus does something that is internal and spiritual. In other words, he gives you a new nature when you believe in him. The old thing has passed away. All things have become new. Your old nature dies, is buried, crucified with Christ, and you rise in newness with him. Now, we still sin, of course, because we still inhabit these bodies of flesh, that have tasted sin. But one day these bodies even will experience their redemption and we will live in that newness of nature that God has already given uh, to us. So he's telling them, he's saying, listen, Jesus has given you a new nature. He has broken the power of sin in your life. He says, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So he goes on. He says, listen, you're identified with Jesus. He gave you the circumcision. He cut out that old nature, gave you a new nature. He's given you freedom uh, over and and victory over sin. Even though we do fail in these bodies of sin and, uh, and all of that, in general, there is victory in him. As we're walking in him, we can grow. We can gain victory. We can be changed and transformed. But here he says, You've been buried with him in baptism. Now, there are times in the New Testament where baptism is spoken of, and it isn't alluding to a water immersion, but identification, dipping into, or immersion into something specific. Here, I think Paul is not referring to water baptism. He's not saying, listen, when you are water baptized, these things happen to you. We know that water baptism is a picture of, of the inner reality. And here he's saying the inner reality is that you, when you gave your life to Christ, you were buried with him. Secondly, you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You actually were raised with Christ. And verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses, that's how far gone we were, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us All are trespasses. So think of what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you were buried with him. You were raised with him. You were made alive together with him. You are forgiven in him. He is showing them that they really are full in Jesus, have been filled in him, uh, and that they've got a great deal in what they've received in Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain it in verse 14 this way by saying, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There was a record of debt against every single one of us. For the Jews who had received the law, there was a record of debt against them because they had broken God's law. But for the Gentiles who had not received God's law directly, they had received it in their hearts. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that even the doers of the law are guilty. You know, they, they may not have heard it, but when they say something like, hey, don't lie, or don't hurt me, or uh, that's not fair, or that's not right, they are testifying, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. They are testifying that the law is written on their hearts their conscience bearing witness of it. So when they don't keep it, they are breaking the revelation, the law that they do have. We all had a record of debt that stood against us, but it was wiped out by Jesus Christ when he nailed it to the cross. They may have, Romans may have taken those nails and and broken Jesus' flesh and nailed him to that cross. But in another sense, as Jesus was being nailed, he himself was, was doing the nailing. He was taking those that debt, that handwriting of requirements, and nailing it to the cross, forgiving, wiping it away from those who would believe in him. He, verse 15, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. I think Satan was openly ridiculed on the cross. Satan has sought to attract worshipers to himself, but he always crushes the life of his worshipers. Jesus seeks worshipers as well, but he allowed his own life to be crushed in order to gain those worshipers. And so Jesus, on the cross, triumphed over them in him. There was a triumph of Christ on the cross of Calvary. That was a great victory. It looked at first glance like a loss, but upon deeper uh, study further study you discover no that was the greatest victory that was ever won there was triumph that occurred on the cross of calvary remember that great victory that jesus has won and remember the great thing that you have in christ jesus you are full in him you do not need the philosophies of empty deceit god bless you and amen thank you for listening For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.